You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Robbie Samuels hosts the On the Schmooze podcast. Robbie, tell listeners what to expect from the show. Since 2015, I've interviewed entrepreneurs who overcame challenges to achieve success in their field or industry. Tune in to On the Schmooze to listen as I ask deep questions to elicit untold stories about leadership and networking. And where can people subscribe? Find the show at ontheschmooze.com or on marketingpodcast.net or just search for it wherever you get your podcasts. You heard them. Go subscribe. Hello and welcome to Uncorking a Story. I'm your host, Mike Carlin, and today I'm pleased to introduce you to Laura Truio. Laura is the Managing Editor for Life and Entertainment at USA Today and former reporter and editor for the Cincinnati Inquirer, the Arizona Republic, and the, the Oregonian. She does advocacy work on behalf of suicide awareness, and her latest book is Stepping Back from the Ledge, A Daughter's Search for Truth and Renewal, which is available wherever you buy books. Here today to talk about that and so much more is Laura Truio. Laura, uh, welcome to Uncorking a Story. Hi, thanks for having me. I like that you called it my latest book as if I had like a whole string of books before it. So well, it made me feel really like a real author. I made that mistake hours ago as I was interviewing somebody. And I said, I made the mistake of saying his first book is, and, and he's like, I've had four books before this. I'm like, oh, okay. no, no, totally fine. I just, I thought that was very nice of you. And so it's my latest book. Well, see, I did, did we're not misleading anybody with, <laughs> no, with, with, with no. that introduction. So uh, Laura, I'm going to ask you the question. I ask everybody as they sit in, um, in that seat, uh, where does your story begin? And you'd think I'd have a really brilliant answer since I know you ask this question <laughs> and would maybe have like a story. Um, I mean, I think the story behind at least the book began um, almost exactly 10 years ago, which is when um, my mom killed herself. And I, I think the story begins, obviously there was a lot of stories before that, but really the story is trying to, um, for me, trying to understand why she did it. Um, and kind of how she did it, not like the method, but like, how did it become, um, how did she get to that point? How did we all get to that point? And so, I mean, yeah, I, I mean, I was a journalist. I am a journalist again. So that clearly has led me. I'm probably, I'm a curious person by nature. I always want to know the how and the why. Um, so in some ways it was the way I guess I thought I could deal with it was to mm -hmm. understand why. Got it. So this book is trying to help you. Is it part of, was it part of your healing process you'd say as you were going through this or was there something else kind of pushing you or influencing you? I mean, I think now that it's all finished, I could say it was helpful 
I didn't approach it. Like I'm not one of those people who was like, oh, writing is really helpful in healing or, which is fine that people do that. It's just not me. Like I find writing to be painful and awful and difficult and the opposite of healing. So I didn't, I, I guess I didn't approach it that way, but for me, it was more, I guess the reporting of it, the learning everything I could about my mom and eventually kind of everything about me that maybe I hadn't um, acknowledged was, um, I guess, healing, you know, mm -hmm. um, I will say like, I'm in therapy and my therapist is like, well, you're really ahead of a lot of people because you've already, you know, you've processed it by writing it all down. I was like, okay, well, let's move on to step two then. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I know it's helpful. It didn't feel like it during the time, but yeah. it may have been. So let's, let's, I need to rewind a little bit just to get some, a uh, little bit of a backstory. So um, tell me, um, just kind of tell me a little bit more about your mom and kind of the circumstances surrounding, you know, her, her death. Um, well, I mean, I think my mom is really wonderful. Like when I look back on life, she was a pretty typical mom from the seventies and eighties raising two kids. She was a nurse. Um, then she became a hospital administrator. She seemed healthy and great if you look at it through that lens. Um, she was retired. So um, she died, like I said, about 10 years ago. So she was um, in her sixties and Honestly, it's weird because um, she died um, on a Thursday morning and my sister learned how she died and called um, my kid's dad and he told me what happened. And it was like in my head, I couldn't believe it at all. And it seemed like, oh, that makes sense, which is weird because before I would not have thought my mom would have killed herself, but somehow in that moment, it went from, I don't know how this happened to, of course, that's what happened. And my mom had um, been having some depression, which we knew, and she'd been going to see a therapist, but we were like, isn't everyone a little depressed? You know, there's always something going on in your life. And um, I knew her husband had been sick and um, he was a pretty severe alcoholic. So I was like, you know, there's probably that. And I'm sure a hundred other things you don't know about your mother. Um, but nothing that I was like afraid of or thought, oh my gosh, she, you know, it's come to this. Like, I just thought, oh, she's, I hate saying this, but like regular depressed. And um, yeah. apparently she was not. And she drove, so uh, my mom lived in Phoenix, which is where I grew up and where um, I had lived until a couple months before this happened. I had moved with my family to Ohio and um my mom drove from Phoenix to the Grand Canyon. And in the morning, she um, went out to an overlook and jumped in. In, I don't know, down, I don't know mm -hmm. how, it's a weird thing to say, um, but she killed herself there. And um, they found her body shortly after. And that's, I guess I learned about it by that evening. So, wow. um, but I wouldn't say that we, I think everybody had little pieces of my mom's life, kind of like, which I guess is in everyone's life right now. Someone knows a little, each person knows a piece of you. And unless it's so bad that people want to stage like an intervention, I think no one realizes the extent of anyone's either 
I guess it could be pain or difficulties or whatever it is they're going through or happiness, I suppose. It could be the opposite. You know, you only know the part of the person you know. And so I guess part of what I wanted to do was find out, you know, why she did it. And part of that was, well, what does everyone else know? And when you put all those pieces together, I still don't know if we would have thought that, but we, you know, just because that's pretty drastic. Um, So, yeah, I think that answers that. Yeah. I mean, I, I've, you know, unfortunately um, been, been talking to a lot of people about suicide recently, um, you know, on, on this program. And I've talked to filmmakers, you know, one person who attempted um, and then um, survived and wrote um, a, uh, a screenplay and, and turned it into a movie. Um, another who lost his son to suicide shortly after his 14th birthday. Um, then another who, um, you know, was, you know, had suicidal thoughts and, you know, was institutionalized and, um, you know, wrote a memoir about that. And, you know, it's one of those things where it's still very taboo to, to even think about and talk about, you know, the sort of ending of, of your life. And it requires a lot of vulnerability to even, to even address it. I mean, even for, for you to address it, um, and investigating it, you know, from, you know, your, your mother's side, um, just kind of talk to me about, you know, vulnerable, your own vulnerability in, in investigating kind of like what, you know, what, what happened with your mom? Yeah. I mean, it's, um, it's weird because people talk more about suicide now than I think they ever have. If you look at just kind of through history, like we're talking about it more, but it's still happening more than it's ever happened. So, um, while it's becoming less stigmatized, I, it still is. And I know from, in the beginning, it was hard for me to say, like my mom killed herself. I would say, oh, my mom died. And because, you know, I'm a grown up, people would just presume like, oh, well, she had cancer or something. And I didn't correct them because I didn't want to talk about it. I didn't. And it took me a while. And I've learned a lot because I know in the beginning, like I said, committed suicide. And then as I did reading, I learned, oh, you shouldn't say that. You should say died by suicide or killed themselves because it sounds like they did something wrong, I guess, like mm-hmm. commit a crime. But um, so it was hard to say. And I think you get two reactions when you say it. It's like people kind of slowly back out of the conversation. You can almost physically see their body moving backward to just get away of, wow, this is uncomfortable and I don't want to talk about it. Or I find that people completely open up about it and they'll tell me about something that happened in their life or their family's life. and. I guess I've frankly been surprised at the number of people whose lives have been touched by suicide. I shouldn't be because, you know, you do the research, you see the numbers, and then you see the every person who kills himself affects, I don't know, 160 lives or something. And so, of course, but just because we don't talk about it that much and it doesn't come up, I've just, um, I guess I've mostly been surprised at people who almost see me talking about it as a door open for them to talk about it too, which I think is good. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't, um, but yeah, I mean, some people definitely are like, well, that is not the conversation I wanna have right now. And and I understand that, nor do I, I'm like, not gonna force them into it, but you can definitely tell by people's reaction if, and it doesn't mean they haven't been touched by it, they just may not be ready to talk about it. But um, I think I'm much more open about it and can just say it. I don't always say my mom killed herself. I just say, oh, when my mom died because 
just depends on the, I guess, the situation. But, um, but yeah, in the beginning, I wasn't um, comfortable with it. I, um, I mean, people knew because there was a news story because like you can't jump into the Grand Canyon and have that be unreported. <laughs> so, you know, she died in a very public way. And I had happened to work in the newsroom that covered it, um, covered her suicide um, a few months prior. Like I had worked in Arizona at the big Phoenix newspaper. Mm-hmm. And then when um, they wrote about it, I wasn't there anymore, but like people knew that was my mom. Yeah. And um, so it wasn't that people didn't know, but I still just didn't always bring it up to talk about. I mean, it's was uncomfortable and I think it was, I wasn't ready to, I hadn't accepted it exactly. And I felt really guilty about it. Um, And so I think talking about that was meaning then I'd have to talk about me and I wasn't ready to talk about me. You know, one of the first things that people talk to you about suicide, they're like, oh, did she leave a note? I was like, yeah, like the note is like, everyone has this idea that the note has like all these details that are correct and written with a lucid mind and like, oh, here's why. Okay, well, we have the answer, like a lab report. Like right. I feel like people think of it that way. And honestly, I've probably thought of it that way. Like, oh, did they leave a note? Okay, then you know. And then when it happens to you and you realize, well, that note was written when the person was probably not in a complete um, healthy state since it was before they killed themselves. And it's been interesting that people like that's their first question. And I don't know if that's from watching TV a lot or, you know, what that comes from, but it it is, people seem to think like, oh, if they left a note, all is fine. Like there's the map to what happened. And and it's not. Yeah, it's it's probably one piece of a much larger, murkier puzzle. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, yeah. imagine trying to write like, oh, here's why, because there's usually a thousand reasons why. So I just, I think that's an interesting question people have. Yeah. Well, I um, I want to pause talking about your your mother for a bit. I, I, I do want to come back to the book, um, but I just want to talk about you for a little bit. Um, if that's, if that's okay. Um, so you've had kind of quite the career as, you know, a managing editor and and a former reporter. I'm curious, like, what did you want to be when you grew up? Like when you were, when you were younger, you know, teenage, you know, teenage Laura, what, what, what were you hoping to be? Well, when I was a kid, I, I don't even want to, I wanted to be an embalmer. Okay. Now this is worthy of further conversation. (laughs) Um. Okay, so my dad was a forensic scientist. Um, So he did, this was in the, I would say the olden days. So it was blood um, and hair analysis and body fluids, which I found fascinating as a kid um, and always wanted to go with him to the lab. And his good friend was, um, Wally was a funeral director. So I don't know, I guess I just thought these things were normal. And I thought, Mm. I knew that people really liked Wally because he was helpful because obviously, you know, at a funeral, he was very calming. So that's what I wanted to do, which I guess is a weird career now. When you look at it, like as a child, that's what I wanted to do. And then, um, so I wanted to do that for a while. And my dad was like, you can't do this because you talk too much. And like, you'll tell some story and it's, it's like, you can't do that. Like, this is a job where you have to do and keep people's privacy. and." That was a fair assessment my father had of me at that age. And when I was 
I guess 10, it would have been fifth grade. Um, my mom went back to school. She was an x-ray tech out of whatever. She went to whatever school you go to to be an x-ray tech when she was like 18. And she wanted to become a nurse. So she had to go get her, um, I don't know what it was, a nursing degree, obviously, but part of it was typing papers. And my mom was like, well, you're going to learn how to type so you can do my papers. And I was like, okay. So again, you didn't know how to type in those days because it was yeah. 1980. So she taught me to type. So I, I did all of her papers. And then somehow the school secretary found out I knew how to type. And they were like, oh, you can be the editor of the paper. And I was like, because I know how to type. And they were like, yes. Yeah. So apparently like that was the real skill you needed to be the editor of your like elementary school paper was learning to type, which seems a little questionable now, but anyway, um, I did that. And I guess I just liked it. I like finding stuff out. I like listening to people and it gives me a reason to ask a lot of questions. Um, my kids do always say they're embarrassed by me because they're like, anytime you meet someone, like it's not work. You're, you don't have to interview them. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm not interviewing them. I'm interested in them. So I'm asking questions. So I think it just, um, it led to like, it's okay to ask questions. You can go into a stranger's house and like sit on their couch and ask them stuff. And, and they'll answer, I mean, for the most part, obviously yeah. you ask. And then you get to leave and you don't have to solve their issues. Um, and you can tell what they told you, which I always found to be interesting. So I guess that's how I ended up in journalism. Yeah, I, I um, so my day job is to run, I run focus groups and market research interviews. So, you know, very much, you know, like you, I find myself in front of groups of strangers and sometimes individuals asking them sometimes really personal questions about their lives, but I don't really have an off switch for that. So when we go out to dinner as a family, you know, when the stars align, um, you know, I will, you know, have conversations with, you know, the, the server. Um, just to know more about them. Or when I'm at the grocery store, mm -hmm. you know, I'll just have a conversation with the person who's checking us out. And my kids are like, well, you're going to embarrass this dad. And I'm like, I don't know. I'm just being friendly. I'm trying exactly. to, I'm trying to build rapport with people and, you know, and I'm just actually curious. So, yeah. That's, um, that's like, you know, you talk about, you know, being a typer, knowing how to type and, and getting the, the gig as the editor, but the real skill, I think for any kind of reporter or even people who do what I do for a living in marketing uh, is curiosity. Like that is first and foremost, that would be the one quality I'd look for mm -hmm. in somebody, um, you know, as a reporter or someone who, who even does what I do. Yeah. And I think it's always like, I was never interested in being the reporter who, you know, like a lot of people want to be that kind of reporter who finds out who did something wrong. And I'm like, mm -hmm. I want someone else to do that story. And then I want to come back and do the story that's like, well, why did they, or how did they? Because that's always the most interesting part of any story to me is just how did that unfold or what circumstance led to something else and led to something else. And you wind up in a spot, maybe you never thought you would be in. And I guess life is just like that, a bunch of little yeah. small turns. Yeah. But I have to also say the, the embalmer comment, which did throw me off guard. I'm I was... Um... I was, so, you know, I, we have a, a church out here in, in Stanford, Connecticut called St. Leo's. Um, every year we put on a big fair and I am part of the group that fries pizza dough, right? The pizza free tent. And um, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm next, I'm frying next to this guy named Jesse. Jesse is 26 years old. 
his parents run one of the big restaurants in town and he doesn't work in, in the family business. Um, and I know this because, you know, we're frying dough and he looks over at me and it was like, kind of like 11 o'clock at night. He's like, Oh shit. I'm like, what's the matter, Jesse? He's like, I have to be at work um, by 3 AM because I have to embalm somebody for six. <laughs> I'm like, Oh my gosh, I had no idea. But that, that's my one story of, uh, of embalming. Um, <laughs> Jesse Lataraka, embalmer extraordinaire. Yeah. Um, so tell me, um, tell me about the USA Today, um, because I, I will admit to uh, being a business traveler, a heavy business traveler. Uh, back in the day, the USA Today was always sort of at my, at my you know, doorstep outside my hotel room. <laughs> And I would always go to that purple section first. Um, oh, because... we love people like you. Or I love people like you because <laughs> now I work for the purple section. And you can always tell people who well, are like around my age who got print because they're when I tell them what I do, they're like, oh, you work for the purple section. And I was like, <laughs> yes. Although I haven't seen a print edition in years. <laughs> so. I know, it's so, it's so sad. But A, I mean, I love that the USA Today was always in color, had pictures. Um, but B, I'd skip green, I'd skip orange. I didn't really care about sports, uh, money investing, forget about it. I wanted to know what was going on in pop culture. Um, well, so tell I, me, tell yeah. me the story there. So um, I've been there just since last July. So I haven't been there a really long time. I was a journalist for about 20 years. And then one morning I quit. I probably should have thought through a little better than I did, but um, like never text your spouse, hey, I quit. <laughs> Do you want me to pick up the kids from school? You know, So I quit um, and I think I took a break from life in a way. And mm -hmm. I ended up doing PR um, for a bank which would be like the opposite thing I think of what anyone thought I would do or that I thought I would do. But it turned out I loved it. Like the people were really great. It's based here in Cincinnati. And I learned about all these people that I always wondered like who goes to work in a big building like that? Like in an office building, all wearing like the same Ann Taylor suit. Like who does that? And like, what do they do all day? So for me, like I, I really loved my job. I mean, because I, I liked what I did. I got to tell stories, but also I got to like just find out what people did. So in some ways I felt like an anthropologist who was mm -hmm. also doing PR. So um, I did that for actually for six years. Um, and when I was working there, um, the woman, Nicole Carroll, who's the editor of USA Today, I used to work for her in Arizona. So however many years ago, and she would text me now and then, um, are you ready or do you wanna write about your mom? Because she knew I had written, um, about my mom a little bit on like Facebook or Instagram, like I'd post a picture and then because I'm wordy, you know, the caption would end up being really long, It'd be like an essay. So she's always like, you should write about her. And I would always say, I'm not ready. And then one day she texted me and she was like, hey, if I got Kelly French to edit, would you write about your mom? And I was like, yeah. I will. And then she's like, okay, now I guess I need to see if Kelly French wants to edit your story. And I was like, oh, thanks, <laughs> Nicole. So, um, and Kelly is known, I think, in like journalism circles. She's a really great story editor. Um, at that point, I think she was a professor at um, Indiana University. She'd written a book about um, her daughter who was born prematurely. She's written a lot of stories. She's married to Tom French, who's a really great writer as well. So I was like, yeah, if Kelly would edit me. That would be terrific. So um, I guess she convinced Kelly to do it, obviously, because um, 
I ended up saying, sure, I'll write about it because I think because I hadn't been writing, I hadn't been in journalism. Um, my brain was able to like quiet itself in a way that maybe it hadn't been able to in journalism. And so I had, I hate the word, like I had the space, but I did, I had like the space in my brain to be able to work on it. And so that's, um, so I wrote it while I was working at the bank. Um, so it took, I don't know if it took a year. I mean, obviously I wasn't working on it all the time. It was like working on it after work or something. And I wrote the story for USA Today, which I had no affiliation with at the time. And um, that's how I wound up writing a book, I guess. Yeah. And then later, Nicole texted me, like she often texts me, hey, you ready to come back to journalism? And I say no. And then one day she texted and was like, hey, are you ready to come back? There's life and entertainment's open. And I was like, yes. Um, so then I wound up back in journalism, which I love. But um, I think I just lucked into everything, which is, I guess, life um, in that well, she asked me to write that. And I was lucky to have a really good editor. Um, and I do always joke that like, I don't write unless I have a deadline and an editor and I'm being paid. <laughs> I know well, I'd say, <laughs> you know, I think life is, is talent and timing, you know, I think yeah. those two have to come together. Um, why did you leave journalism when you did? You mentioned kind of, Hey, never text your spouse. Uh, I'm leaving. And you had two small kids. Um, I had what? four small kids. You had four. Oh my goodness. I So I it was a really dumb you. thing to do. I think I was tired, honestly. Um, I mean, my husband and I had moved here in to Cincinnati in from Phoenix in, in February and in April my mom killed herself we were in a new city where we didn't know anyone we both started new jobs we had four kids starting school and I think it was hard <laughs> it was harder than I guess I realized and after a couple years I I didn't think I could do it anymore I didn't think I could do it at the level that I think stories need or stories deserve and um, I didn't want to cover news anymore. I, there was about a year after, well, it was almost exactly a year after my mom died, there was a teenager who shot himself in a classroom and I couldn't make a decision on the story. Like I couldn't, I was like, I am incapable of doing this. I'm either overly sensitive or I'm the right amount sensitive, but my news judgment, I need to be excused from this story. And so I think it was things like that. I think it was um, Sandy Hook. I think mm -hmm. there were a lot of things where I was like, I don't, I don't want to be a part of this. I can't do it. Um, and you know, I think I was also like, I'm sure I was depressed, um, even though I was on antidepressants at the time. I wasn't doing great, and I just was like, I can't do this. And so I quit, and I took a couple months off. Um, which was great because it coincided with a year with a lot of snow days. So um, it was nice to be off and not have to worry about what to do with the kids. And um, then I was just like, well, I need to find a job because this was kind of dumb. We have a kid about to go to college and then we have three more who are going to follow and I probably should have a job. So um, I ended up, you know, 
going into PR, which is what most people do who are journalists, because I was like, well, I don't, I don't have any skills. Like, what are my skills? I can type, you know? So that's right. And I didn't feel like anyone was like, oh, you can type, let me hire you. <laughs> and I didn't want to do journalism anymore. And I will say people were very nice in the industry who reached out and were like, do you want, you know, do you want to do this? Do you have interest in this? And I was like, I don't want to do journalism right now. And I think I needed that break. I think it's made me a better journalist. Um, because I know what it's like to be a regular person and not care about the news, you yeah. know, or not feel like I have to read the news or be like, oh, the news makes me so sad. And I used to think those people were really weird. And now I'm like, oh, I am those people. So I think it's given me some perspective um, that I needed. And then it was time to go back and, um, and do the kind of journalism I wanted to do, which was more, which I know people will laugh, oh, you wanted to do celebrity journalism? And I was like, well, yes and no, but I was like, every story tells a larger story. I mean, if you're telling a story about, you know, someone's secret marriage, it's really more about marriage and love. It's not just that story. Like, I think there's always something more interesting about society or culture that any story tells. Not that we always get into that, but I think the possibility is there. And I like that. Yeah. I and mean, there's also a reason why people are drawn to the Kardashians. You know, yeah. there's a reason why people are drawn to reality TV in general, you know, um, yeah. because we are a little, we're, we're all a little bit voyeuristic, I think. We are. And I think people's stories and maybe some reality TV stories feel very magnified or bigger, but they are stories about love. There are stories about pain. There are stories about like universal themes that we all go through on very different levels, of course, <laughs> but I just, that's what connects us. I was like, stories connect us. And if you don't have that, I don't, I don't know what you have to me. It's the one way you connect with people, you understand them, you create empathy. Like that's, I don't. So when I say I do suicide advocacy work, it's mostly writing. Like yeah. I'm not answering um, a suicide hotline, which I would be the worst person ever for that. But um, I feel like I can help tell people stories and that's, um, probably the most effective way I can do it. Um, yeah. Yeah. So um, I do have some uh, specific questions for you. Okay, um, sorry. I just- No, 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 no. This is great. And I ask these of, of uh, almost everybody. Um, uh, just again, this is in the spirit of getting to know you a little bit more. Um, what were some of your favorite TV shows when you were a kid? Uh, well, Little House on the Prairie was my favorite. <laughs> I know. Laura, Laura, no, so, no, Laura Ingalls. I wanted to be Laura Ingalls and I love that show. And they had what I thought was the perfect family. And I wanted, I wanted to be part of that. Even if we had a bathroom outside, like I wanted to be part of that. You wanted your father to play the fiddle every night? Um, no, I'm going to say my dad played the guitar at night. Sometimes. Okay. So no, the fiddle was, I didn't want either of those. Um, and then, of course, Love Boat and Fantasy Island, which you were, know, you know, shows I, my parents did not let me watch. And every time I watched Fantasy Island, I would have terrible nightmares because it always was like, you get what you want, and then your life is terrible. And um, and I don't know, maybe that they maybe they were right. I shouldn't have watched it. There was a darkness to Fantasy Island. Oh, everything was dark about it, right? That there was, was a darkness. Have you seen the reboot? of fantasy island no, i don't i don't know if it's still on it came out last year it wasn't terrible um they had an interesting interesting creative twist on mr Rourke, uh who's 
who actually the person who plays the Mr. Rourke character is his granddaughter or grandniece or something like that. And tattoo was some, but it was, um, but there was a movie, there was a fantasy Island movie about three or four years ago. And it was too afraid to watch it. It was dark. I mean, it was a dark movie. Um, You know, I'll say that book that got a ton of attention, which I read, um, the Midnight Library. Did you mm-hmm. read that? Oh yeah, yeah, I interviewed. I interviewed the guy who wrote okay. the Midnight Library. Yeah, yeah, which I think is great. I love what he does for mental health. Um, Matt Hag was it Matt? Yeah, Hag? Matt, Matt Hag. Yeah, yeah. I enjoyed the book, and then I finished it, and I was like, that was just like a really long episode of Fantasy Island. <laughs> I mean, it was well written and well done, but I was like, oh my gosh, it's Fantasy Island, but done well because it was that to me. That was the story that Fantasy Island told you every week. There was a, a movie on HBO, um, maybe came out a couple of years ago called My Dinner with Hervé, which is a, a, an account of the last days of Hervé Velichez and the reporter who was writing a story got like put on this, you know, story. Um, it was actually a very, very good movie. Uh, it was Jamie Dornan, I think, mm-hmm. is the reporter. I watch it. I'm surprised I didn't watch it with everything it's, I watched over the past two years. Oh, I know. It's it's, it's very good. Um, and Love Boat. I mean, it's so funny how often Little House on the Prairie and Love Boat come up whenever I ask that question. Um, well, writers, too. I think we all like Little House on the Prairie because I read those books and my mom read them to me. And the books I have that I still have are ones that were given to my mom when she was a girl. Wow. There's like an inscription from Aunt Myrtle and I don't know. And well, if I you get... try to read them now, they're so boring. I don't know if you try to read any to your kids. Oh no. It's like it takes a whole chapter for Pa to build a door and you're like, okay, just move the story along. I don't know. I, I don't have time for that. But I mean, so I get the little house thing, but explain Love Boat. Like, why do people talk to me about Love Boat? I mean, I was a huge Love Boat fan. I started rewatching it during the pandemic. But oh, I haven't rewatched it. I mean, I think as a kid, it felt very grown up. Like I mm-hmm. had this eye into this glamorous life where people went on a cruise, which living in Arizona, like I hadn't even been on an airplane. So right. I thought this just seems really glamorous. Yeah, um, that was more my feeling um, of why I watched it was it was this window into what I thought was really wealthy people's lives. Going right. My grandfather was a uh, he was a um, a surgeon. Uh, and then after uh, in World War Two, and then, you know, he had a private practice. And then after he retired, he got a job on a cruise ship. Um, oh. So he and my grandmother used to take cruises all the time. And he was the ship's doctor. So my in my head, my grandfather was Dr. Bricker. <laughs> um so he used to enjoy the show but it was just uh, doc right doc wasn't doc. he just doc i didn't yeah. even know when you said his last name i was like oh, oh yeah no i forgot yeah. he had it had it last oh no, i know a little too much about love boat but i don't want to go down that rabbit hole <laughs> or that portal i should say um <laughs> so if we were looking at your uh uh your pl- any playlists you know think about spotify itunes whatever you use who are some of the artists we'd find um you listening to more often than others Um, It would be a real mix. I think you'd wonder who had it because I think in part because I have kids, I do like a lot of the music they listen to, but then I also like music that I like. I have a lot of The National on there. I love them. I think about at least half my book was written listening to them, Um, which is when I listen to them now, I'll listen to things and I'll be like, oh yeah, that was chapter four or something, Um, (laughs) but I love them. And they're actually a Cincinnati band, which I didn't know when before I lived here. Um, I like Kid Cudi. <laughs> I like a lot of um, music. I like Frank Ocean. Um, 
it's it's a, a mix, I guess. It's um, kind of depends on the day of what I feel like every now and then there's like a tears for fears that pops up or something. They're, they're, they're going to be on tour this summer. I know. And I'm not sure I'm ready for that. No, no more tears and, and bigger fears. <laughs> I don't know. I think a lot of things um, with music you listen to, it's sometimes best to just keep it there. Yeah. Um, then, then to try to, I don't know, live it again. It's like, I have good memories from that and I'll just leave it. Fair enough. Yeah. I have no interest in seeing the Rolling Stones right now. Um, but uh, how about this getting more into uh, writing? Um, how do you feel when you're staring, you know, at a blank piece of paper or a blank computer screen, depending on how you write? Um, what emotions do you feel the blank um, page in front of you? I mean, I always am anxious, like just in general about everything. So there's a certain amount of anxiety, but I will say I feel very differently about each because if I have paper, I'm like sketching something out and I think I'm brilliant. I'm like, okay, here it is. And there's like a circle and a line and I'm like really into something. And everyone who knows me, even at work is like, anytime I have an idea, I have to have my paper and I have to draw it out. And it seems really great. And I'm so excited about it. And then I have to move that to the computer, which is where I write. And then I was like, Ugh, that was a terrible idea. Like, why did I think that was so genius? when I was writing it there, it's hard for me to start. Um, it's not bad once it gets going, but I always have anxiety. So like, that's just the general feeling I have. Um, no matter where I am, it's my general state. Yeah. Um, you know, this is, as, as we uh, mentioned before, your, uh, your latest book, also your first book. <laughs> um, what lesson about sort of that process, the writing, um, the writing, the book writing process, do you feel like you had to learn or do you feel like you did learn the hard way? I guess everything really. And I wouldn't say it's the hard way. Um, I really lucked out, um, with how I ended up with a book contract because literally, uh, an editor from Random House called me and was like, well, tell me more about that. Cause that, that is not how it usually happens. No. And, um, I'm lazy. So I guess it's sort of like, well, I'll write a book if someone knocks on the door and asks me to, you know, but, um, so I wrote the story for USA today. And like I said, I was working at a bank and a lot of people emailed me or called me like kind of track, not track me down. It's not like I was hiding, but, um, just tell me something nice. Only a couple people said something mean, but mostly people wanted to talk about their life and um, suicide. And a woman called the editor at USA Today and was like, hey, I want to talk to Laura. I'm an editor. And Nicole, very nicely, was like, well, I'll take your name and number and give it to Laura because I'm not just going to give it to, you know, her number to anyone. So she gives it to me. And then I like take a lunch break because I work at a place that has like a lunch break. And um and I call this woman and I'm like, I should have Googled or something first. So I call her, her name's Kate Medina. And probably cause I have a little bit of like imposter syndrome. I was a little worried. I was like, ah, I'm a Trujillo. She's a Medina. Is this like Hispanic imprint, which there's nothing wrong with, but I felt like, oh no, are they gonna pigeonhole me over here? And this is what she wants to know about. So she calls, or I call her, um, and I love her immediately. She's like the perfect mix of like your mom, but also really kind of um, a little sassy, incredibly smart. Like, you know, from the first time you talk to her, she's brilliant. 
So she asked me about the story and she's like, have you ever considered writing a book? And I was like, um, I don't know, hasn't everyone considered writing a book, <laughs> you know, kind of. And she was like, well, do you have an agent? And I was like, I don't have a house cleaner. Like, I don't have an agent. Like, I, I don't think you know who I am. Like, I, I wrote the story because I knew someone. I feel very lucky. Um, so she was like, well, I think this could be a really good book. So I think you should think about it. And I was like, okay. So I got off the phone and then I was like, I should look at who she is. And I was like, oh my gosh, she's like a real, like she edits Gloria Steinem. She edits Tom Brokaw. Like she edits all these like, I want to say real writers, right, you know, right. I was like, I just work at a bank. And so um, I was like, wow, that's really cool. And so um, my husband at the time worked at a library. It's a, like a membership library here in Cincinnati. And he knows a lot of authors from that because they have a ton come through. And he was like, well, why don't I ask Curtis Sittenfeld and I love Curtis Sinfeld. Like I'm like a fan. Like I can't even talk to Curtis Sinfeld when she comes to something because I love her so much. So he's like, I'll call Curtis. And I was like, oh my God. So she so nicely called me and said, So Kate called you? I was like, Yeah. And she goes, That's unusual, Laura. And I said, Oh, okay. Well, I don't know how any of this works. So she said, That's really great. So um, and then she spent so much time, Curtis, explaining to me like, okay, well, do you want to do this? This is going to be like a year of your life, probably writing about the worst thing that ever happened to you. It's going to be about a year writing. It's going to be, I don't know, half a year, a year editing. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, if, if people like it, <laughs> you may be talking about it. And so think about how much of your life you want to commit to this. And I was like, well, I mean, it's going to be part of my life regardless. And maybe I can be helpful or useful. So, um, stuff. so I said, okay. And then Curtis connected me to her agent and she was like, it's not going to be this agent, but she'll know who mm -hmm. is a good agent. So she connected me to this woman, Dorian, who of course was also brilliant. The first time I talked to her and was like, I can't believe she wants to talk to me. And then she told me she had been the agent for, um, Paul Kalanthi, who wrote when breath becomes air, which is one of my favorite books or had been of late because it hadn't been out very long. And I was like, oh my gosh, if she worked with Paul and his wife, Lucy, I can't believe she even is talking to me. So yeah, she'll do it. And so then Dorian explained like, okay, so now we have to write a book proposal. And I was like, well, why? Like, he asked <laughs> I mean, not to be stupid, but I was like, okay, but I thought we could skip that part, you know? <laughs> it's hard work. <laughs> exactly. And I was like, well, what is a book proposal? You know, and she was like, well, I'll send you samples and we'll walk through it and we can do it. And then, um, you know, at that point we have the option. So I'm learning everything. She's like, then we can take the book to different publishers to see who wants to buy it. We know that Random House has interest. Um, and so I was like, okay. So we worked on the, um, proposal, which wasn't that bad because I felt like she gave me a how-to and yeah. I'd written the story. It wasn't, you know, I feel like I'd done some of the work. Um, it, and then I knew it needed to be more like this, this newspaper story was a tiny part of it. So we worked on that. And then she said, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I mean, I shouldn't say this, but I was like, 
I mean, I would pay money to work with Kate. Like, you know, then she's like, that's not really how book contracts work, Laura. And I was like, it's like the reverse contract. Exactly. She's like, you know, I'm your agent. And I was like, okay, well, I'm just saying like, I feel like I have learned so much and I have an opportunity that I never imagined I would have to have just like talked to her and talked to you. And I'm learning all these things. And it's just like, I would love to work with Kate. And she's like, well, then I'll tell Kate that you know, I'll give her the proposal and we won't give it anywhere else. And then we'll um, come up, yeah. you know, whatever, they'll come up with an amount or however that works. But I just feel incredibly lucky that like, I feel like I fell into this with like the smartest, brightest, most caring people I could have met. And I've never met them because this all happened. Um, like I finished the, the book was due April 1st, 2020. And so we were all going to meet after I turned it in, but then the pandemic happened. And so I've still never met them in person, but oh my I goodness. Just, um, really love them and feel just grateful and lucky that um, I got their brilliance and that they could help me. And Kate is advice. Anytime I talk to her at the end, I, was, I always say, well, what are my next steps? Cause I work too long, you know, <laughs> in places where that's what you ask at the end of a meeting. And she will always say, which makes her sound more crass because she's not crass at all. She will say, ask to chair, Laura. And I will say, okay, it's like, sit down and do the work. And um, she's right. And that's like the best advice I think anyone could have given me at that point. And yeah. so anyway, so that's how it came about. Like, I feel bad and people are like, how, how did you get a book contract? And I was like, I don't know, I answered my phone. Like, <laughs> I mean, not really, but I feel incredibly grateful to have been given an opportunity to work with people like that. And I, I, I'm sure I would not have pursued it. It would seem like way too much work and I wouldn't think it was good enough. And I wouldn't think anyone would want to read it. And I still think like, did I pull one over on Random House? Like, you know? Believe me, you, you didn't because they don't, they don't make those calls lightly, you know? No, and they, Kate will get mad at me when we're having a conversation and she'll say something about the book that's nice, like in the writing. And I'll say, Kate, you are so kind. And she will say, Laura, I am not kind. I mean, I am kind, but like, I'm not telling you these things to be kind. I am a smart editor and I'm telling you what I think about the book. And I was like, okay. So I, I'm trying to learn that during the year. Like, she's like, I am like, don't diminish my credentials. I'm not going to tell you something's good if it's not. And I was like, okay, well, I just kind of can't believe it's good. So um, I don't know. I guess that's it. Um, that's, it just felt, um, they're just so smart and I just feel lucky that they had anything to do with me. Yeah. Well, I mean, you, you did write that piece for the USA today. It did take you a year. You know, you did go through some, you know, uh, some rough, rough roads to, to even produce that. So uh, it took half a year. I don't know. It doesn't matter. It took some time, you know, <laughs> Um, I, I, we do have to wrap up. I do want to know one thing though, behind your right shoulder, I'm seeing a picture. Um, what's that a picture of? Is there a story oh, yeah. in that picture? Yeah, that's, um, my Nana, who's my dad's mother. Um, when she was about 17 and she's with her two friends, um, who were her friends until they all died, which is oh my goodness. amazing. And I love it because it's three, um, Mexican American girls who, from the story that I've been told, skipped school that day and went to South Mountain and hung out um, and someone had a camera. And there's some really amazing pictures that my cousin found. I'm really bad at 
genealogy and all of that, but he found all of these and I looked at a bunch of them and that one was my favorite because they all look a little badass, I guess is to say, and I don't use that term very often, but I feel like they look smart and sassy and confident. And I thought, wouldn't that be kind of cool to have them um, like here with me? So like uh, it's not great it's like I blew it up at, at Staples to be really big so it's kind of pixelated it's not like a real I mean it's giant like a poster but my Nana was really amazing and she came to my graduation and I think I was the first of the grandkids maybe to graduate from college I'm not sure and I remember her telling me like she put her hands on my face and she was like don't waste it and I was like um okay you know and I kind of get it now in that she had four kids she um she didn't have a career she didn't go to college and I think that's what she was telling me and like I hopefully I haven't wasted it but I just like having her there um and I like that there's um you know cactus in South Mountain in Arizona um and that she was friends with these girls her whole life but she was really cool and I loved her a lot so I like having her there very cool well, Laura, this has been a fun uh, and very informative conversation. Um, you know, parts of it were fun. Um, <laughs> but uh, thank you for taking the time to, to chat with me and, and talk to uh, our listeners uh, about, you know, your life and your book uh, and, of course, your your mom and, and all the, the story that, that kind of led up to it. Um, uh, wish you all the best with the book. Well, thank you. And thanks for making the time to listen to me ramble. I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs>